we're coming up on an election soon. Actually, as a matter of fact, the election has already begun with early voting. My wife has already voted. I have, uh, I have a mail-in ballot uh, sitting waiting for my, uh, my filling it out and sending it in. So I figured I would take the, take the opportunity. Voted. What? Simcha voted, yes, I'm sorry. So I figured I would, I would take the opportunity to speak about one of my favorite topics, elections and governance, and in particular the, question, the, the somewhat thorny question of clean and free elections and, uh, and, it's, and the, the opposite side of that coin, corruption. As I always point out, it's, you know, corruption sounds like a pretty black and white issue, and you know, honest and free elections, clean elections sounds like a pretty straightforward issue, but it's actually... It's actually a surprisingly difficult concept, difficult topic to pin down exactly what the requirements of cleanliness are. So, for example, through much of the history of our republic, there was a spoil system. The, when, 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 somebody, when a party won, won the presidency, they would give out the civil service jobs to their supporters. People decided that was corrupt. How can you do that? It, it was seen as perfectly normal a while back. That was how the game was played, that, that civil service jobs were were uh, were plunder, were, were prizes to be to, to be apportioned among one's supporters. Today we think that's not appropriate. Today we think the civil service jobs, both in both in terms of the right of people to get those jobs, and in terms of the right of the country to be to be administered by the best people, we think that should be uh, meritocracy. That should be more objective. Nevertheless, even today, some some remnant of the old system applies. A president appoints ambassadors. He typically, commonly appoints ambassadors, people who supported him. They may not always have uh, distinguished careers in diplomacy, but if there if there is a strong supporter who helped the president with money and other types of support, he makes him the ambassador to New Zealand. Is that fair? That that sounds like it's the old uh, spoil system again. Civil service covers certain jobs, not all jobs. So how do we define corruption? What is corruption? What what is just considered you know normal? The rules of the game. Also, a very important point, which we'll get into tonight as well, the difference between, the difference, if there is a difference, between elected officials, representatives, and citizen electors. If we have a congressman voting, we don't want him to have a financial interest in, in, the, in the thing he's voting on. If they're voting whether to spend federal money to build a bridge, and the contractor is owned by a congressperson, we would think that's a major conflict of interest. A judge can't rule on questions that, in which he has an interest, and congressmen shouldn't be ruling on, uh, voting on questions which they have an interest. When it comes to individual electors, though, the rules are much different. Every interest group, every sector of society is allowed to vote for policies that it feels will be in its own interest. If I'm poor, I can vote for more government uh, transfer payments to the poor. If I'm in the building industry, I can vote for a party that will modify the tax code in a way that's beneficial to the building uh, industry or that will do more, more infrastructure projects which will be beneficial to industry. So we seem, to, we seem, to, we seem intuitively to assume there are, that there are different standards for, for uh, private citizen, citizen voters than there are for public representatives, that the, that the latter have much stronger conflict of interest rules because they're representing other people than voters themselves. Even when it comes to voters, there is a kind of general sense that voters should be should take a, a broad view and vote what's good for the country and not what's in their short-term interest. It's not illegal; a person's allowed to vote for a short-term interest. But we have a, we have a certain sense of civic uprightness that it's, it's an ideal that a person should vote for what he thinks is what he thinks is best for the country, or maybe not. Some people say that that that's just naive foolishness. 
a voter should vote for whatever party is, uh, is, is, is going to be better for his uh, economic prospects. This was the title of a famous, a famous book, A Liberal Attack on Conservative Voting Patterns, What's the Matter with Kansas, where uh, he couldn't, the author couldn't understand why the conservatives in Kansas were supporting policies on ideological or tribal grounds that were not ostensibly in their best interest, given their economic situation. All right, elections are complicated. There are a lot of factors people take into account. So we're going to discuss tonight uh, a very interesting and important tshuva on, that touches on all these topics. The tshuva is by Rebeliezer Gordon of Tells. Rebeliezer Gordon was a, was a great Rosh Hashiva and Rav in the Lithuanian city of Tells about, uh, about a century and a half ago. He was born in Tafresh Aleph in 1841. He died in Tafresh Ayin in 1910. So he, so he died a little more than a century ago. He was one of the... One of the he, he, he didn't found the yeshiva of Tells, but he was one of the... It's early Russian yeshiva who built it and developed it into the yeshiva powerhouse that it later became. He was also the rav, the, the, the city rav of the, of the city of Tels, the, the, the Lithuanian city of Tels. So he has his tshuvas. His tshuvas are published in Tshuvas Rebeliezer. And this one tshuva I keep coming back to, I think it's the only tshuva in the Sefer I know, but I keep coming back to it because it's such an interesting and important tshuva on the topic of fair, fairness in elections. He was discussing a, a Jewish election, a, a, not a uh, national election. He was discussing a Jewish communal election. It was an election for the position of town rav, to be the rav of, the, of a certain city. And there were at least two issues at stake. One issue was that there were people among the electorate, among the Jewish, among the mem- membership of this community that were related to one of the two candidates. And the question was, are they eligible to vote? If they are related by family to one of the two candidates for the position, do they have to recuse themselves on the grounds of a conflict of interest? And the other issue was bribery. There, there were allegations of corruption, of bribery, of vote buying. We're not going to discuss the latter issue. We're going to focus on the first part of the tshuva, which deals with the former issue, which is, is a relative of the candidate for office eligible to vote for the candidate? Now, in the United States, obviously the answer is yes. As a matter of fact, you can even vote for yourself. They, they always have those photo ops where they, where they show the president walking into the booth. Of course, because of the sanctity of the secret ballot, you never know who he actually votes for. You, you commonly assume that he votes for himself. Maybe sometimes he tells you he votes for himself. You wonder who his wife is voting for. You, usually, I would assume his wife votes for him. Sometimes the wife m- might vote Dafka not for him. She doesn't want him to be in the position. But, uh, but in general, we, we do not exclude relatives or even people themselves for voting. But that was the Shaila in the Chuva of Rebeliezer Gordon, that was the, the part of the, ch- the tshuva we're going to deal with tonight. Is a person allowed to vote on a matter that affects his relative, his close relative, a relative who would be, he'd be possible ages for, a brother, a cousin, something like that, a, a child, a spouse. Is a person allowed to vote for, for, for a position where his close relative is one of the candidates? Now, much of his tshuva... Is built, is built upon earlier tshuvas that we've actually discussed in this share in the, previously. One of them is a tshuva of the Maram of Rattenberg, and the other is a tshuva of the Chassam Sofer. The Maram of Rattenberg wrote a seminal tshuva. He was asked a very basic question. There was a city that couldn't reach consensus. The, 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 it was, there were factions that were at loggerheads, and they simply couldn't reach any kind of uh, mutually acceptable consensus, compromise. What should they do? Uh, how shall the city proceed if, if they can't reach unanimity or consensus? 
what should they do to how do they reconcile the 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 conflicting claims, the conflicting positions of different factions. So the Maram of Rattenberg said the answer is democracy. This Jew of the Maram is the father of this the Maram is the father of democracy in Halacha. This Juva the Maram is uh, an incredibly important seminal Juva in the, the halachic literature of Jewish self-governance. We know in the biblical times and Talmudic times there's a lot of discussion of monarchy and so on. But the Maram established a rule, and this is brought by all the later poskim, that uh, certainly on the local level, if people in a community can't agree on a path forward, the answer is they vote. They, they vote either direct democracy, they vote on specific, uh, specific ballot questions or referenda on specific questions, or they vote to elect representatives, to elect a council, Zion to Behoer, and they're going to be the ones to make the decisions, a kind of uh, legislative or administrative council who's going to run the city. But either way, the answer is democracy, you follow the majority. That was the tshuva of the Maram. The Maram adds a very important line, one line, but a very, very important line. The Maram adds... Everyone who votes, first of all, he, he, he seems to assume only the taxpayers vote. We've discussed that in the past, that in, in halacha, it, 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 according to many postkim, it's less one man, one vote, and more one dollar, one vote. That's a topic for a different time, about the, the, outsize, the, outsize, uh, the, the, the outsize voting power of the rich. But the, putting that aside, the, the Maram has another very important line in the tshuva. He says, when they vote... Everyone has to accept, under penalty of cherem, he calls it bracha, which is a euphemism for cherem, for curse. Any, everyone has to accept, under penalty of curse, of klala, of cherem, that he will express his opinion, l'shem shemayim. Everyone has to commit himself to a kind of civic-mindedness that he will express his opinion, l'shem shemayim, and not, apparently, it doesn't explain as opposed to what, or what's the alternative. But that's what the Maram says. <laughs> Everyone has to commit under penalty of cherem to express his opinion l'shem shemayim. So I always, again, I always wondered what that meant. Let's say they're deciding on a construction project. Like one of the examples that Maram gives is building a basic Knesset. Now obviously the local construction industry has a very strong interest in the project going forward. More business. They'll, they, they hope to get a piece of it. So let's say the, the, the people who are in the construction industry are they allowed to vote on this question? What are they supposed to do? Is, is it really possible for them to set aside their parochial interest and vote L'shem Shemayim? Maybe. Maybe that's what we expect. Hard to know. Maram doesn't give us much guidance. The second tshuva, which we've discussed also in the past in this, in this share, is a, is a uh, sensational tshuva in the Chasim Sofer. His case was also, like Rabbi Gordon's case, was about an election for the Rav. In his case, the, there was an election, and then, and then after the election process had begun, there were these explosive allegations of scandal that vote-buying had occurred, that one of the candidates for the position, or his agents, his relatives and his agents, had bought votes, had paid cash or promised cash to the electors in the city to vote, to, to, to vote against the other candidates and for him. There were, there were, I think, four candidates in this case. So the Chassam Sofer was asked what to do about the scandal, so he, he distinguishes between whether the allegations were, pro, were, were, were proven or, or simply mere rumors, whether, assuming that they're true, whether the vote buying could be traced back to the rabbi himself, which taints him personally, or was simply uh, efforts by, by his supporters to, to, to buy the election for him. He goes through various types of, uh, various, all, all kinds of different possibilities. But the Chesam Sofer says that if the votes were bought, if it could be established that votes were bought, 
one of the key holdings of his tshuva is, if it can be established based on testimony conclusively that votes were actually purchased, then the vote is void, the elections are, are, are null and void. And he makes two, he, he expresses this in two different ways, perhaps different ways of saying the same thing, but he explains this doctrine in two ways. One of them is by reference to the Maram of Rattenberg we mentioned earlier, that, that people, when they vote, have to express their opinion L'shem Shemayim. By definition, he says, if you, if you, if you sell your vote, by definition, you are, no, you are not expressing your opinion L'shem Shemayim, you're expressing your, you're expressing your opinion, you're selling your opinion to the highest bidder, which is the epitome of not L'shem Shemayim. So that is one argument, that, that, that you violate the Maram's cardinal rule of elections, which is you have to vote L'shem Shemayim. Another way he expresses the problem is by reference to a Truma Sadeshin. Truma Sadeshin was talking about also about, about, about appointing someone to a position. He wasn't focusing on elections per se. He was talking about some kind of appointment. Somebody was going to be accepted, appointed by a community, perhaps even unanimously. Somebody was going to be installed in a certain position of authority. The problem was this person in his history had committed a grave crime, a grave sin. He had perjured himself. He had sworn falsely. That is something that would render you puzzled to be a Dayan, according to Halacha. Now, Halacha recognizes tshuva. There is such a thing as tshuva. But tshuva, in such a context, has particular formal requirements, and those requirements were not yet met. They could be met in the future, but they weren't met yet. So the question was, does the community have the right to appoint such a person to be one of the... Again, they weren't appointing him to be a Dayan or a, or a Tzaddik. They were appointing him to be a political administrative leader of the city. So the Trumasadashin says, nope, can't do it. And he establishes another, also a very seminal tshuva. He says that the Zion Tuvehaer, that, that the people who run the city are like Dayanim, just like Dayanim make decisions and we expect their decisions to be impartial, so too this governing body of the city elders, the city, uh, the city freeholders, the, the city council, has to be, they have the status of Dayanim. Anyone who's possible to be a Dayan is possible to be on this council as well. Since someone who takes who, who swears falsely is possible to be a dayan because of rishus, it's considered a chait that renders you disqualified to be a dayan. So he's possible to be on this council as well until he does proper tshuva. So the, the Truman's nation is saying something remarkable. He's equating the judicial branch dayanim with the legislative or administrative branch, the the people who are in charge of running the city. He's assuming that the qualifications of dayanim apply to the executive or legislative heads, uh, admin, officials as well. According to that, some people have argued that other psalm of the are, in, are are ineligible to sit in, in government, that a member of the Knesset can't be, shouldn't be able to be a woman because she can't be a Dayan, or, or even a Ger maybe, or, or a Ger is a different issue, but a Ger, a Ger also can't be, in certain cases, can't be a Dayan, and so on. So that's a topic for another day, but I'll call upon him. So we have the, we have the, we have the Maram who's telling you that even the individual voters in the city have to commit themselves to expressing their opinion L'shem Shemayim. And we have the Truman Sedeshin telling you that no one, can, no one can sit on the city council if he's a Russia, if he's possible as a Russia. The Chassam Sofer then extends that Truman Sedeshin radically and says that applies to the citizen electors as well. Just like the city council is considered Dayanim according to the Truman Sedeshin, that applies to the, the voters as well. They have the status of Dayanim as well, and therefore they can't be Rishayim either. And, and, and if, they, if they sold their votes, then they're apostle to be a Dayan. Their, their, their votes are apostle. So you throw out their votes, both because they didn't express their votes, L'shem Shemayim, 
and because they're disqualified, they, they can't be dayanim, so they can't be voters. This assumption that even ordinary citizen electors have the status of dayanim is actually invoked by Rabbi Lazar Mayor Pryl of Elizabeth to explain why women can't vote. Many of the gedolim of a century ago felt that Meikar Adin women should not have the franchise. And one of the reasons, he says, this is the reason, because the, the Truman Sedeshan, the Chassam Sofer, tell us that even ordinary voters have the halachas of Dayanim. Anyone who can't be a Dayan can't vote. A pretty radical conclusion. It would follow anyone who's not a Shomer Torah Mitzvah can't vote. Also, uh, we don't really implement that. All right, again, that, 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 that takes us uh, far afield. I'll call upon him. Now we can get to the tshuva of Rabbi Ezra Gordon. So we have, the, we have these three tshuvas, Truma Sedeshen, Maram of Rattenberg, Chassam Sofer. Maram of Rattenberg says, people who vote must express their opinions of Shem Shemayim. Truma Sedeshen says, people who vote have to be qualified, eligible to be Dayanim. Chassam Sofer says, therefore, vote buying in an election for position of Rav disqualifies and validates the whole election. So now, turning to Rav Gordon's tshuva, he begins the tshuva by saying, She'ela, if Krovim shel Rabbanim, relatives of the candidates for the position of rabbi, Yicholim l'chavos dea b'bechiras rav, can they vote, can they express their opinions in the election for rav? Now halfway through the tshuva, he gets to the question of vote buying and corruption. First half of the tshuva deals with this question of are relatives eligible to vote? So he says, He goes back and forth and back and forth in this tshuva. He goes, he, 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 he keeps going back and forth. His, his initial position is No. Why? Chasim Sofer. Chasim Sofer tells us that the people who, people who vote have to, uh, they have to, they're like Dayanim, and they can't, uh, and like Dayanim, they can't, they can't, they can't vote. A Karov can't be a Dayan. Karov is a Kruve Daita. A Karov is considered to have a, a tendentiousness toward his Karov. And therefore, they have the same rigorous standards as Dayanim. And therefore, just like the Chasim Sofer said, that people who sold their votes are possible to be Dayanim and can't vote. So it would follow that the relatives as well. He, he says it should follow that the that it should follow that relatives are not eligible to vote for Rav. However, he says, he brings the Ramah. The Ramah brings a Truma Sadashan who says that someone who's possible because he's a Russia is ineligible to sit as a as a Tuve Hoyer, as a member of the city's administration. That's Mashma only a Russia. The, the Ramah seems to emphasize the specific psul of Russia, of someone who perjured himself in the Truman Sedeshin's case, the specific psul of Russia is what disqualifies you from sitting, on, sitting in government. But other types of psulim, like kurva, it sounds for the Ramah like that would be okay. Not necessarily a diuk, but he says the Lavush says so explicitly. So he says kurva is okay. So even on the one hand, he, he, he tried to infer from the Chassam Sofer that a Karov cannot vote on a position of interest to his relative. On the other hand, the Ramon and the Lavush strongly imply or state explicitly that a Karov is okay. A Karov may have a governmental position. He may vote even on a matter that's of interest to his relative. So now he says, maybe he says that the he says maybe this maybe this idea that a Karov is allowed to vote on uh, allowed to take take part in, 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 in politics, even though his Karov has an interest. That's because when it comes to public matters, public questions like taxes and revenues and expenditures, those questions, by definition, are always relevant to everyone. Anytime the government makes any, any rule, whether to raise revenue by taxation or fees, 
whether to spend money on particular projects, by definition, there are always winners or losers. The, the people paying are the losers. The people not paying are the winners. The people who receive their revenues and expenditures are the winners. The people who don't are the losers. So those types of questions, it's a zero-sum game, and there's always, uh, everyone is Nogeba Dabr. Anyone who votes is always going to be Nogeba Dabr. So al they they said, Karav is kosher as well, because in those types of voting questions, everyone has an interest, and it's impossible to have purely disinterested people. You vote to raise taxes, so if you're in one of the brackets, the taxes are being raised, and you're in a gabadover. Your money is being transferred to the poorer segments of society. If you're in the brackets that's not going to get the taxes raised, you're in favor, because someone else's money is going to be used to, to, to do things that are hopefully uh, valuable to you. So these types of questions, questions about public revenues and so on, are, are so inextricably intertwined with uh, conflicts of interest, with, uh, with winners and losers, it's impossible to, to hold out for pure neutrality, so they didn't mind if, uh, if Krovin vote as well. But when it comes to a vote for rabbi, he says, most people have no direct interest in, the, in who has the office. Most people are perfectly able to vote L'Shem Shemayim. They have no direct interest in who's going to be the Rav. And only there, are, there happen to be a few people who are relatives, there, it makes sense that Allah should exclude those people from voting for, voting for the rabbi. So, at this, so, so he goes back to, at this point, he goes back to his starting point. Since the Chassam Sofer tells us that, the, that people who vote have the status of Dayanim, and we, and we try to apply all the psulim of Dayanim to them, and uh, since this is not a tax question where everyone is fundamentally conflicted anyway, this is a rabbi question where most people have no conflict of interest, therefore we should make the analogy to the case of the Chassam Sofer, and we should say that, that, that since most people are neutral, most people are disinterested, there happen to be a few people who have close connections to the rabbi, relatives, for whom there, there's a conflict of interest, we should exclude those, we should exclude specifically those, and say, you can't vote, you are ineligible to vote on the, on the rabbi question, because your, relatives, because, one, because your relative is one of the candidates. So that's at this point, at the end of Os Aleph in the Tshuva, he is still in his starting position, based on the Chassam Sofer, that a relative should be permitted to vote, or should be prohibited from voting for a position of rabbi where his candidate is one of the, is one of, where, where his relative is one of the candidates. However, he says, he now proceeds to bring proof from Rishonim that relatives are eligible to vote on a question of rabbi. He brings a tshuva, another tshuva, the Maram of Rattenberg, we're not going to get into the details of the tshuva, but the tshuva, it's a more complicated case, but the tshuva indicates that a rabbi was chosen in a contested, uh, in a contested position, for, for a contested position, the people ultimately chose someone who was a relative of theirs, a relative of the council that was making the decision, and it didn't seem to bother anybody, or maybe it bothered somebody, but the halacha didn't care. The fact that the, the, fact that the candidate for the, who was chosen was a relative to the decision makers did not bother the Maram of Rottenberg. He felt that it was an acceptable decision regardless. So he proves that from the, Maram of Rat- from the Maram of Rattenberg. Then he proves a similar thing from the Sefer Arzarua, another one of the great early Ashkenazic Rishonim. The Arzarua talks also about a case where there was someone who was chosen to succeed his father. Uh, he, said, he said that person had the right to the position. Uh, if, he, if, he, if he was chosen by the community... We discussed in other contexts uh, the idea of inheritance, Yerushin Rabbanus, so and putting that aside, Maram of Rattenberg says, if the, the Arzurua says, if the community chose him for the position, 
then that's a valid decision. And again, despite the fact that he, that he was despite the fact that he was their relative, he refers to the people who chose him as relatives of the family, relatives of this of this person they chose. Again, that wasn't the primary issue with the tshuva, but the Arzura seems to take for granted that a decision to choose a specific person that was made by relatives of that person is a valid decision, despite the fact that they have an obvious and blatant conflict of interest. Their decision to choose him is valid nonetheless. So even though he initially has been arguing in the, in the first section of the tshuva, he argued, based on the Chassim Sofer, that anyone who votes has the status of a Dayan, and therefore anyone who's ineligible to be a Dayan can't vote. A Karov, a relative, is certainly ineligible to be a Dayan, and therefore shouldn't be able to vote. However, he brings proofs from tshuva the Maram, tshuva the Arzerua, that a relative is indeed allowed to vote for, the, for a position in which, his, in which his relative is a candidate, despite the fact that he wouldn't be eligible to be a Dayan. And now he explains, in, 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 in the third section of the Tshuva, he expl- in Os Gimel, he explains why would this be so. Chazim Sarfer Lechara is making a good point, that uh, based on the Tshuva Sedeshen, those who vote, those who vote, uh, you know, that, that if they're Negev Adavar, if they're Puzzle for some reason, they shouldn't be uh, that, that they shouldn't be able to vote. So why why do we let the Krovim vote? What's the of this? The Chassam Sofer Sfara seems very logical. How can we distinguish between between these cases? So first he suggests that maybe only when it comes to taxes, when it comes to revenues and monies, he says maybe there where, where there's a question of right and wrong, we're going to force people to pay money. So deciding who should pay and how much they should pay. That, that's a question which is very much uh, that, 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 that touches on people's, uh, on people's rights, on people's uh, property rights. There, that decision is considered like a decision of a basin, of Dayanim, and therefore we insist that they have all the psulim of, uh, of Dayanim. That's what the Truman Sedeshim was talking about, someone who was voting in, on a tax question, where, he, where he's going to be taking away people's money without their consent. There we have the status of Dayanim. When you're just choosing a Rav, a Rav is an employee, he says, a Rav or Chazan, he says, that's just like partners who are hiring uh, an employee or hiring, uh, hiring a, a manager, he says, or laborers, he says. That's not Dayanus. There's no din going on here. Choosing to hire somebody, there's nothing being done against a person's will. You know, taxation, the power to tax, is the power to confiscate people's property without their permission. That's like din. Just deciding who to hire, this Rav or that Rav, this Chazan or that Chazan, that's like deciding which, which, which employee to hire to mow your lawn, which... Uh, which manager to hire to run your business. That's not an issue of din at all. And therefore, he says, it doesn't matter if they're not being, being made, being made, it doesn't matter if they're krovim. So at that point, the chassam sofer would be wrong. He's saying that the only time the maram and the trumas adeshin are telling us that they have to say their opinion, that they can't have a conflict of interest, that's only when we're discussing taxation, when we're, when we're discussing imposing the community's will against, against the will of, of individuals, there we have to have all the high standards of Dayanim. We're just deciding who to hire, or how to spend some money, communal money, who to hire for the, to do a service for the city. That's not a question of din. And that, he says, maybe it doesn't matter if they have conflict of interest. That's what he proposes. However, he shoots this down right away. He says, if we look more carefully at the Chassam Sofer's sources, at the sources in the Rishonim, for this doctrine, if they have to be Magadite from Lashem Shemayim, they were also talking about hiring a Rav and a Chazim, not just taxation. They were also talking about these cases which don't sound so much like Din. Just deciding which Chazim to hire, the guy who's, uh, 
who sings uh, has more singing and takes a longer amount of time, or sings less and and, and davens faster. There's no din over there. It's, it's not. Uh, maybe some people feel like they're 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 in din. It's, it is the yamadin, but that's not. Uh, I'm sorry. That, that was a, that was a poor joke that came out awkwardly. But um, either way, the point is that's not din. No one's being judged. No one is having their property seized and confiscated by the government. So, th- nevertheless, the Rishonim over there say they have to be magadaitim l'shem shemayim. They have to. Uh, they have to. They have to be l'shem shemayim. They have the standards of day on them again. So we see the Chazam Sofer is correct that even in cases that don't involve taxes, even in cases that just involve all kinds of communal decisions, which have no real resemblance to din, nevertheless the Rishonim tell us we do still nevertheless apply the standards of din. We still require that the Dayanim be magadaitim l'shem shemayim. So the Chazam Sofer is correct, and once again, so so, so the Chazam Sofer would seem to be correct that we should not allow relatives to vote for their candidate. What, yet the Rishonim imply that we could. He brought the Arzarua, the other Maram, who seemed to say that the relatives could vote on a position of rabbin. How do you, how do you reconcile that? If they have to express their opinion in L'Shem Shemayim, and they have to be like Dayanim, how on earth can we let relatives vote for a position of, uh, of rabbi? So he says something very interesting now. Many things in the Shuvah are interesting. So he says that, he says as follows. He says, Really, this whole idea that we're treating electors as Dayanim, he says, really, fundamentally, that, that's, a, uh, that's a problematic thing to say. And, and, and he goes back, really, to the chiluk I made in the beginning between representative government and individual citizens who are voting. It's one thing to say that if I represent a community, I represent a constituency, that I have to be, I'm like a judge, I have to be L'Shem Shemayim. If I am ultimately the principal here, I am the citizen, I, I am one of the citizenry, I, I'm a person who, I am the public. I'm one member of the public. So why should I have to vote Hashem Shemayim at all? Just like partners, just like they can vote for whoever they want, whoever they're interested in. They, they're not answerable to anybody else. They can, of course, they're allowed to vote for their personal interests. If you have a business, if you have a business, you can vote for whoever your personal interests are. So why, why, why on earth should we say that private voters, private electors, have to vote Hashem Shemayim at all, he says. Why is, why is, the, why is the Chassam Sefer telling us that private electors, why, why are the Rishonim telling us, that, or not, why is the Maram telling us that individual citizen electors have to vote L'Shem Shemayim? Why? It, it, it's their community, it's their, it's their life, they, they can do whatever they want. They, 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 want to be, they want to be venal and short-sighted, let them do it. It's, it, 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 it's their own, it's their own it's their, why don't they have the autonomy to do that? So he says, he says something, he says something very interesting, he says that they made a takana, he says, since Chazal felt it would be better for the community to have votes that were a little more, uh, a little more objective, a little more disinterested, and people have the power to do that. It's a takana. So they said everyone should try, even though Meikra Din, they might have the right to vote for for their personal grubby interest. Chazal felt that the community would be better off if people actually voted l'shem shemayim. Everyone would be better off if everyone voted l'shem shemayim. So they made a takana that everyone should try to vote l'shem shemayim. But since it's not really Meikra Din. The Takana just was, everyone should try. Everyone should try as best as he can to vote L'Shem Shemayim. If he, if he refuses to, if he chooses not to, then they disqualified him from voting. But when it comes to Krovim, he says, they didn't do that. Because on the one hand, it's his right to vote for whoever he wants. He is a member of the city. Just because he's a relative, he is a stakeholder. He is one of the principals here. He has the right to vote for the Rav. He has the right to vote for, he, it's his right to vote for the Rav. Now, we tell him to try to do his best to set aside his personal interests. So he has to make an effort, he has to make at least a good faith effort, he says, 
to try to set aside his personal interest and vote L'shem Shemayim. But to the extent that he tries and he can't, we know that it's impossible for someone to be totally objective when his family's at stake. To the extent that he can't, he says, we don't disqualify him from voting because it's his right. It's his right as a member of the city to vote, he says. So as long as he tries to vote L'shem Shemayim, he does his best, he says, then that's all we ask of him. The cherem he has to take is to do his best uh, to, to the extent that he can to vote L'shem Shemayim. To the extent that he can't, though, he deserves to vote anyway because it is his city and he is the principal. If he'd be just an elected representative, to recuse yourself if, you, if you're in a Gabbador. You shouldn't be the one making the decision. But here he says, why shouldn't I make the decision? It's my city. He's going to be my rub. Why, why, can't, why shouldn't I have the right to make the decision? Therefore, he says, they were Misake and that you should try to make the decision using as uh, high-minded, uh, using high-minded criteria to the extent that you can. But to the extent that you can't, they did not disqualify you. They said, just, just agree to do whatever you can. Do your best to be, uh, to be objective. And after that, we let you vote because self calls self. It's your city and you have the right to vote. So at this point, he, he once again is agreeing. To, at this point, he would once again agree with the Chassam Sofer. He's saying that, he's saying that someone who is a, a Russia, like in the case of the Chassam Sofer, who sold his vote, someone who is deliberately in bad faith, not acting L'shem Shemayim, is certainly disqualified. Because there's no excuse for that. Because I didn't have to allow that. They said you can't do that. And that they disqualified. However, someone who is making a good faith effort to vote L'shem Shemayim, it happens to be that it's, it's impossible for him to be purely objective because he's related. Blood, blood is thicker than water. Such a person, he fundamentally has the right to vote. And Chazal didn't strip her from him because uh, once he's doing his best, Chazal didn't feel the need to strip him of his right to vote. And therefore... At this point, at the end of section Gimel of the Tshuva, he's taking the position, the Chassam Sofer is correct, that someone who is acting in bad faith, who's not be acting L'shem Shemayim consciously, is disqualified from voting. However, someone who is making an effort to, to behave objectively, just it happens to be that, 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 that fundamentally it's impossible for him to be totally objective, such a person, once he tries his best, is not disqualified. That's based on the Arzerua and the other Tshuva, the Maram of Rattenberg, they're allowed to vote despite the fact that they have an unavoidable, the unavoidable conflict of interest, because it's their relative, as long as they're trying, Chazal allowed them to vote. That's his conclusion at the end of section Gimel of the Tshuva. Then he says, he turns around once more. He says, wait a second, but this whole idea that you have to vote L'shem Shemayim, he says, let's talk about a regular Shutfus. And this is perhaps the most important paragraph of the whole Tshuva. He says, let's discuss a regular Shutfus. I, I, for years I've been very surprised in, in all the halachas of Shutfus, in the classic postgame, the Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch, the Gemara, there's no real discussion of what to do if Shutfin simply can't agree on a path forward. There are certain rules about objective best practices, certain things are considered inherently reckless, but beyond that, if you have a business decision, should we buy, should we buy red merchandise or blue merchandise? There, there's no way to answer that question from the Shulchan Aruch. The Shutfin don't agree. There are seven partners. Three want the red merchandise, two want the blue merchandise, two are not sure or don't have an opinion. What do you do? What do you do if Schutzfin can, simply can't reach a consensus and there's no objective criteria that, that will enable us to decide which is the correct course of action? So surprisingly, for thousands of years of halacha, this question was not discussed, at least not to my knowledge. The Rebelezer Gordon is one of the first postkim to directly address the question of what you do. We already had the Maram of Rattenberg who said on communal affairs, you follow Rove. That's actually broader than but that was, this, that was mostly in the context of government. Perhaps you can extrapolate from that to private business as well, but there was, there was virtually no discussion of how a business is supposed to operate until the 19th century. 
Now, again, if the Shutras has a charter, if when they entered into the agreement there were bylaws and there were rules, then they're committed to whatever those rules are. But assuming that there were no rules, and assuming there's no clear minhag in this industry, in this culture of how the business operates, so what do you do? So the... Blazer Gordon says something very interesting. He says, really, you don't necessarily follow the rove. Really, what you do is, Bastin gets an expert opinion as to what the best practice is. Bastin consults, say, someone who's an, who's an industry expert, what is the ideal decision to make in these circumstances. And if the, if the can agree, they can do whatever they want. If they agree to do something that's against uh, conventional wisdom, it's their money. They can do what they want. But if, if, if even one shutuf doesn't agree, six out of seven shutuf in one, course of action A, one out of the seven shutuf in one is B, Basin consults an expert, and the expert says B is the, is the, is the best practice, then Basin tells the shutuf, you're obligated to do B, because the experts say B is in the best interest of the shutufs. Now, Rev. Gordon says, initially, you don't have, Basin doesn't have to consult an expert. If Basin sees Schutfen and most of them want one thing, they are the experts. Why should you assume another expert will be any more expert than them? They, they are businessmen as much as anybody else's. So ordinarily, Basin would defer to the majority of the Schutfen and, and, and simply presume that whatever the majority wants, that is the, the best. Obviously, it depends. There are cases where the businessmen are, are green and naive and are bumbling their way through a new business, and there are people who have been in the industry for 30 years and are... Are, have reputations as being experts, but in general, Rev. Gordon says, if there's an argument between the Schutfin, Basin would assume that the, that the whatever the Schutfin want, whatever the majority of the Schutfin want, is presumptively in the best interest of the Schutfis. They wouldn't bother consulting an outside expert, but if they do, if for some reason they consult an outside expert, that would override the majority of the Schutfin. We would do what Basin, again, not entirely sure why, not entirely why the outside expert is, is considered to be any more knowledgeable than the, these experts, but that's where Gordon assumes that ordinarily Basin does not see the need to consult an outside expert because they simply assume that whatever the Schutfin want is in their best interest. But if they do consult an outside expert, you would follow the outside expert. Furthermore, he says, th- that which he just said, that you don't need to consult an outside expert, he says, why don't you say the Schutfin are Nagea Bedover, he says. Pashid, he says, of course they're Nagea Bedover. But what is their Nagia? Their Nagia is to make money, he says. What do the Shutfin want more than anything else? They want to make money. He says, so that, that, that coincides beautifully with the best interest of the Shutfis. Nagea Bedover is only a problem when there's a conflict. Conflict means that my personal Nagia goes against the, the matter I'm supposed to be judging, which is representing some, somebody else's interest or communal interest. Here, he says, if we have a business, my, my interest, he says, the, the Shutfin's interest normally will line up perfectly with, with, with their personal interest, with the interest of the Shutfus as a whole, because each Shutuf wants the Shutfus to succeed. However, he says, that's true on the business level. But on the community level, he says, on the society, societal level, he says, it's no longer true. There, he says, it, it, as, we, as we started to share with it, it's very easy to conceive of cases where a person's individual interest does not line up with the communal interest. If the community is considering building a bridge to nowhere, the community will not benefit from the bridge to nowhere, but if I'm a bridge builder, I stand to make a lot of money from doing it. So it's very easy to, to conceive of a case where one shutuf's, one, one citizen's personal interests are, are not at all the same as the public's interest collectively. The truth is you can have that case in a private business as well. If, if the shutfin are running a store and one of the shutfis happens to, have, uh, to be a partner in, a, in, in one of the suppliers, I, it's very easy to conceive of a case where even in a, even in a local partnership, 
where one partner might have other business interests which which cause his interest to be uh, to, you know, cleavage between his personal interests and the Shutfus's interest. Okay, but he, he, he's making simplifying assumptions. He's saying generally in a business context, the, each individual partner's interest generally is presumed to dovetail with the interest of the business as a whole. But that's not the case, he says, when we're dealing with uh, on a communal level, on a societal level. Therefore, he says, that's why, we, that's why the Maram said we, they have to be Magadites and Lashem Shemayim, because it's quite plausible, as we've been saying all along, it's quite plausible that the interest of an individual partner will not be, the individual citizen will not be identical to the interest of the community as a whole. That's why it's important to have them express their opinion, Lashem Shemayim. And therefore, he says, if that's true, then once again, he says that the Krovim, he, 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 he goes back the other way again, Krovim should not be allowed to vote, because once again, their personal interest is not the same thing as the interest of the community as a whole, even though we said before they can make a good faith effort to try to uh, ignore that, but at the end of the day, but before he said, why shouldn't they have the right to vote, just like Shutfin have the right to vote, but now he's saying, even Shutfin don't really have the right to vote, insofar as we have a scenario where we believe that the Shutf's parochial interest, personal interest, is different from the interest of the business as a whole, and therefore, once again, we're, we come back to the negative side, Krovim should not be allowed to vote, because even in a Shutfist that would be true. Even in a Shutfist, he said, a, a Karov to, to one of the, let's say, suppliers wouldn't be allowed to, to vote on that decision, because if we, if we can find a case in Shutfist where one Shutfist's interest clearly diverges from the interest of the business as a whole, normally that's not the case in business. Normally, each Shutfist's private interest is identical to the business as a whole. But if we can find a case where an individual partner or an individual voter's interest diverges from the interest of the collective, then he has no right to vote. The, the, that, the, if he's not Lashem Shemayim, he can't vote. And since Akarov, inevitably, his interests diverge from that of the, of the collective, he should not have the right to vote. So at this point, so now again, he's going against the implication of the Rishonim. What, what, what seems to be the implication of the Rishonim seems to indicate the Arzarua and the other Tshuva, the Maram, that a person is allowed to vote for his Karov for a relative. But now he's saying, not, Lachar al Pisvara, insofar as his personal interests diverge from the interests of the collective, he should not be allowed to vote. However, and this is really his final, and this I think is his final twist and turn, he says that would be true if, if one of the two options is objectively better or worse. If we're, trying, if, we're, if we're choosing between two options and the interests of the, of, of the, of the community, of the collective, stands to, be, uh, stands to be benefited or hurt by the decision, then we say we're, we, we disqualify you if you have a conflict of interest. However, he says, in his particular case, as well as the case of some of the Rishonim, he says, they were not dealing with a case where one Rav was objectively better or worse. He says, in his case in particular, he says, if we really don't know which Rav is better, that, that would be a real issue, he says. But here he says, in, this, in the Maestro of the Arzarua, he says, as well as in his case, he says, in his case, he says, when need to be done, we know that none of the Rabbanim is objectively better. They're both good, they're both equally good, he says. That uh, and, and to the extent that they're not, nobody can really decide logically. No, no, one, no one can actually figure out rationally which one is better. On, on objective grounds, he says, on, 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 uh, on, on objective rational grounds, there's no real basis for preferring one or the other. It's a matter of taste and preference, he says, which is often the case in Rabbanim. Sometimes people really feel one Rav is better for the community than another. Sometimes it's a matter of style. I like this Rav better. I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy him better. I don't really claim that he'll be better or worse for the community. I just, I just like him better. That was apparently the case in Rebelezer Gordon. He says that 
He says, if it's not a case of better or worse, he says, then the whole concept of conflict of interest goes out the window, he says. It's just a matter of preference. If it's a matter of preference, you don't have to express the L'shem Shema. You're allowed to express your personal preference. All this discussion of the Maram of Rattenberg, of taxes, of, uh, of all those other cases where they insisted on L'shem Shemayim, those were cases where there was genuinely something serious at stake. There was a for better or for worse, that there was something that would be better, something that would be worse. Taxes, who pays, who pays money? Who pays and how much? And how is the money spent? Those are substantial decisions with a major impact on the community. There you have to be magadites and L'shem Shemayim. But in a case where, as far as we know, the candidates are equal, or that, or that there's clearly no way to distinguish between them based on uh, the, the, for, for the layman to vote, he says, in such cases, there's no need to... Uh, there, in such cases, he says, that, uh, that, that in such cases, that the whole idea of voting L'shem Shemayim is a takana, as we said earlier, he says, and the takana only applies when there's something material at stake, when it's just a question of preference, he says. He says, either way, it's a tova for the shutfus and the tzibur, it's just a matter of preference. Then again, the whole concept of conflict of interest goes out the window. No one's going to gain or lose. It's just a question of preference. And therefore, everyone's allowed to vote, even if they're not voting L'shem Shemayim. And therefore, at this point, he ends up on the other side of where we started. He finally, at the, at the end of this section, he concludes that a Karov is allowed to vote and because nothing is really at stake. Nothing material is at stake. It's just a question of preference, he says. He says, Benin done. We know that we can't be machria. We can't say they know what they're saying and who's better. The Krovim could vote, he says. It's like the Arzarua's case. And uh, he says, don't tell me that they know which one will result in more harmony for the city, he says. He says, we also know that, uh, that on the contrary, the, 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 we, we know the one that the, the challengers were complaining about, that, that actually that is a better choice for the city. So to argue that, uh, that there's a problem here, there's no problem, that this outcome is clearly as good he takes out the names, he puts in, a, the tshuva has ellipsis for the various names, it'd be interesting to know who these people were, what the issues were, but he says that at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the day, he says that they both have the right to stand, even if one is, we think one is a little bit better, a vote is a fair policy, they have the right to vote, but, but don't tell me that there's an issue of conflict of interest here, he says, <laughs> that, uh, don't tell me there's really, there's really an issue of conflict of interest, because objectively, there's nothing wrong with this choice, and therefore, objectively, there is, there's no concern, and we don't need to worry about, about uh, Dine Dayan. So then he goes and discusses for a while, this is the end of Ozdalad. In Ozhei, Vav, Zayin, Chastes, he discusses the questions of Shochad. We're not going to get into that part of the tshuva. Toward the end of the tshuva, in Ozyud, he says, His conclusion, after all these uh, twists and turns and svaros back and forth, his conclusion is, the Krovim are allowed to vote. Krovim are allowed to vote in this case, as he explained, even according to what he said, that they, they really have to be, be magid l'tovas air because even shutfin have to express their opinion l'tovas or shutfis, even on a private basis. They're not allowed to prefer their personal interests where they diverge from the interest of the shutfis. However, he says here, he explained that the, here the, the interest of the tzibur is not really at stake. The candidates are fine candidates. The, 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 there's no real problem. And either, either way, he says, and therefore here, there's no problem with voting, even if they have parochial interest. It doesn't matter. The, the interest of the Tzibur will not be hurt. And that's his basic conclusion. Now, it's very interesting, because he seems to be coming out that even a private voter, at the end of the day, he, he, he ends up back, back where he began with the Tshuva the Maram. Even a private voter is not allowed to consciously, deliberately choose his personal interests over the interests of the community. If you happen to be a Republican, 
and you believe that lower taxes are better but, and, and less spending is better for the future of the country. But there happens to be a government program that you stand to benefit from. According to this cheetah, again, the halachas might be different in, in, in American democracy as opposed to Jewish governance, but according to this basic principle, if this happens in a Jewish community, if you honestly believe that, 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 if you believe that a certain policy is better for the country, but you stand to gain something personally from the policy of the other side, you're not allowed to vote for that. You have to not get to the shame which means you have to, to the extent that you can, you have to set aside your personal interests and vote for the for the interests of the of the of the community, or vice versa. If you honestly believe that, uh, that 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 a certain social policy spending would be good, like a democratic policy would be good, but you happen to, to stand to benefit from a certain tax cut or a certain economic policy of the Republicans, you're not allowed to do that. You have to vote for whatever you think is in the best interest of the country. Again, in practice, it's hard to know what that means. Even the Maram just says you have to magadaytul Hashem Shemayim. He doesn't say you have to actually recuse yourself if you have any personal interest. You have to say that you're going to try to magadaytul Hashem Shemayim. Does that really mean that he would disqualify someone who, who stood to benefit from a government contract from voting on that contract as a private citizen? Hard to know. The Chassam Server seems to say yes. The Chassam Server seems to say that even private voters in the city have all the standards of Dayan. And Rabbi Gordon agrees at the end of the day with the Chassam Sofer and the Maram that even a private voter is bound by, by conflict of interest rules, is bound by, insofar as there's a clear divergence between the interest of the public and his personal interest, he, that would be a problem. I don't know how to apply that Lamaisa. It's certainly in, uh, certainly in, in American democracy, where that's not the rule. Perhaps we would say, Aldas Kain, that's the Minog, that we vote differently. I'm not sure how to apply this, Halach Lamaisa. But Meheri Yibana Beis HaMikdash, if we're ever Zoka to have a Jewish society with Jewish rules about voting, these are, the, these are the key tshuvas that we've discussed in the past and we discussed today. These are the key tshuvas that discuss the rules for, for conflict of interest, eligibility for, for voting. And again, as we see, halacha has, in some ways, a much stricter standard than the law. Even private citizens who are voting, it took, the, it took, the, it took Rav Gordon an entire tshuva, several pages of going back and forth and back and forth to finally conclude that a relative is allowed to vote for, for his relative, for a, who's a candidate for a position, Something that in American democracy is a matter of course. Of course, the, the, the candidates go and vote for themselves. This is one area where halacha seems to have a much uh, stricter interpretation of conflict of interest than the, than, than, the, than the attitude of modern American law.